Well, good news, everybody. It's Palm Sunday. Did you know that? It's Palm Sunday? That's what happens the week before Easter. And, uh, you know, the tradition on Palm Sunday is to uh, wave the palm branches. And the tradition on Palm Sunday is to wave the palm branches and and say Hosanna. And uh, you know what Hosanna means, right? It means God save us. Yeah, like save us, like a, a cry for help. And so underneath your seats is a palm branch, if you want to grab one of those. April Fool's. Okay, I got you. But no, we, we do have some palms right here, huh? So let's just start with that, you know, just we'll say Hosanna. God save us. All right. Well, that was just to get everyone like warmed up, you know, so you knew, knew you were here. And uh, so I, my, if you don't know who I am, my name is Zach Wilkinson. I'm on the teaching team here at Reve. Uh, my wife, Lisa, uh, spoke last week, so that's who we are. And uh, I have a little bit of a, a kind of cool announcement, is that Lisa is, um, this is some news, by the way. So tonight uh, at 5 o'clock at uh, Discover Church in the Highlands, she's being voted on as the new lead pastor of a church, of that church. So if... Well, she, she hasn't been voted in yet, you know, so they could be like, you know, but uh, yeah, so if any of you want to come and support, five o'clock tonight, Sam will be there, so you could carpool, but um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's good to be here, and we're doing this final message in the series, uh, Unraveling Shame, and it's kind of interesting because we are... Uh, the, the passage that I'm going to be talking from today, you know, like people always are like, what are you preaching at? What are you preaching on? And the, my standard answer is always, you know, the Bible. <laughs> but today it's actually different because I'm preaching from a passage that is not in the Bible. That's right. Does anyone have a Bible here today? Is anyone? You, Basil has a Bible. I'm not, I'm not asking that you have to have a paper version, but, you know, like on your phone, um, just turn to John chapter 8, verse 1, okay? Everybody turn to John chapter 8, verse 1, okay? Because that's what we're going to be talking about today. By the way, I didn't pick the passage. It was assigned to me by Sam. So if you're like, well, why isn't he preaching on the Bible? Sam told me to, okay? So um, John chapter 8, verse 1, okay? So now, just by a show of hands, you guys are all there now? Okay, how many of you guys have John chapter 8, verse 1 in your Bible? Raise your hand. How many of you don't? Okay. Oh, Sam. Sam's Bible doesn't. Um, <laughs> and, and it's an interesting bit of a, the passage because, um, you know, when they're putting together all of these pieces of, of Scripture, you know, you got to know that this wasn't written down as it was happening. It's not like there was a stenographer there typing as Jesus was talking, you know. These stories were passed on through oral tradition and then at some point were written down, and even as they were written down, they weren't always pieced together in the same version. You know, I mean, we know as people write down, have books, modern day books. I don't. Some of you guys who are, who are in college, you know how this works. You have to get the version of like Turabian that is up to date, or you have to get the version of this book. And I've done it. You know, tried to get a cheap book online when I was in college. Show up to the class, wrong version of the book, you know, it's like not the most updated one, got to buy a whole nother, you know, but that's, that even happens now. So back in those days, the way it's passing down with oral tradition and different things, and the way these things come to pass is that 
this section of the scripture, and this is why it's so interesting, is that it's not in some of the manuscripts. Like, so there's like about, I, I, I'm not going to dive into the numbers, but it was something like there was like 1,600 early manuscripts. This section was in like 1,200 of them, not in like 400 of them. But the 400 were like the earlier ones that it wasn't in. You know, so there's like some dispute. And so that's what's kind of interesting about this passage is it's like something that is like, what well, was it, where is it? Where? So I'm going to do a little illustration today. Um, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called Operator. Okay, has anyone ever played this game? Okay, so uh, what, what we're going to do is, um, Pristine, if you don't mind, I'm going to have you be the dividing line, okay? Yeah, so, you, so everyone to your right is on this team, Team A, okay? Um, everyone to your left, like all of you guys, front row included, are on Team B, okay? So I'm going to give you guys each uh, a different little thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to you, Sam, first, you know, because you've got to lead the way here. And um, I'm going to tell, tell you something, okay? And then I want you, this is how the game works. Has anyone ever played this game? Telephone or operator? Okay. So, and then you're going to whisper it to your mom, you know, and then you're going to go up to pristine, and then you're going to go down the row. Chris, you're on this side, by the way. And then, so, I don't know how it's going to work. Let's see. And then up there. Okay, so, you, Chris, I think you're the linchpin here. you got to come over and whisper over here to Rachel, okay? And, and then you guys, you know, snake it back up, and, and it'll end maybe with melody, okay? So same thing on this side. Um, I'll go whisper to you, Tracy, and then, and then we'll just kind of work our way back up here, and Jonathan, you'll be the last one, okay? So um, now, I got a couple of things. That I, I'm, I'm going to go start doing this. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to turn off my mic so you can't hear. Oh, wait, one more rule, okay? If you've ever played this, this game before, you have to whisper it quiet enough that the people around you can't hear, only the person you're whispering to. So if you got coffee breath, sorry. Okay. And, and if you genuinely did not hear what they said, okay, you can call operator, and that means you get a redo. But each team only gets one operator. So use it wisely. If it gets used right away down here, you guys are just out of luck once it gets up to the front. Okay, does that make sense? Each team only gets one. We're going to see who gets as close to the real thing without going over. Okay, turning off my mic. So you got to know sometimes as these stories in the early manuscripts get passed along, I'm going to talk over it so that, you know, you guys can't hear each other. When they got passed along, you know, there's this oral tradition that's happening where someone tells a story and someone tells a story. And this, this particular passage, what's, you know, there's a lot of, been a lot of dispute about, you know, it being in and not. And the new NIV, you know, the new version of the NIV just doesn't even include it, you know. And that's why I was saying who doesn't have it in their Bible, you know. Um, so some, most, most Bibles will have it, but then footnote just say some of these early manuscripts. It was used in a sermon by one of the uh, early bishops, as early as 400 A.D., okay, which, um, you know, the, the Bible was canonized in around like 300, you know, so bring it on over. Um, you already used the operator? Did you guys use an operator yet? Okay, they still got one. All right. All right. All right. So, 
It was used as early as 400 in a sermon, this section of scripture. It's called the uh, pericope adultery, okay? And um, it's, it's the story of the woman caught in adultery, you know, so that's the story. And um, this passage, you know, the, of, of scripture, um, what some theories are is that one, in the lectionary where they would read, they would get together, because people didn't read and write back then, you know, most people. Um, they would get together and they'd read the passages, that there were some notes to the, to the person reading, that for the previous passage, you should read up to where this ends, or begins, and then read a passage after it, uh, just to finish off, you know, to kind of like give a nice high note. And that little notes that the scribes put in there made some people think, well, we shouldn't have this in here. Another theory, I'm just giving you theories here, I actually don't know, but another theory is that because the story is about a woman caught in adultery, that some people felt like they should take it out because they, they thought it would encourage women to, to commit adultery, you know? Like, that was one of the theories of why it was taken out. And it's a little weird to think about how, you know, the patriarchal society and some of the even ancient... Wait, are you the last one? Who's the last? Oh, okay. Hold, just hold it. Um, some of the ancient... You already have it, too? Well, let me just finish my thought here. Some of the ancients would, um, you know, have a lower view of women, you know? And so because the, the story of this woman was about a woman caught in adultery, that they said, we don't want to have that in there because we don't want our wives to think it's okay, you know? So there were some of the, these different theories about why this passage may have been taken out. The other thing is, this passage in early manuscripts, it, it is in different places, you know, as if this was a part of the oral tradition or it was a part of how John like wrote a version of the book of John and then later had this other part that he put in there. And so sometimes it's in a different set, section of scripture because it kind of stands alone. It's a story. All of these little stories, you got to think, they're not always in chronological order. You know, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the way they describe it and timeline, they're always, you know, sometimes mixed up. But anyway, all that to say, it's sometimes been in the, where it is now, sometimes in other parts, sometimes it's just attached to the end, you know. So all these different theories as to why this passage is a little bit in dispute on where it is. But we have to know this, that the Holy Spirit inspired not just the writing of the, of the Word of God, of the Bible, but also of what we call the canonization of the Word of God, like putting together the Bible, okay? And we got to know that as these things happen, there's, there's an act of the Holy Spirit that's involved, that's allowing the message to continue on through. And this story, what everyone agrees on, is it 100% fits with the character of Jesus. And it 100% fits with the theology of who God is. And so that's why it's included. You know, had it been some weird thing or off the wall, and then it also had these disputes, they'd have been like, eh, jury's out, leave it, you know. But it fits so well with the character of who Jesus is. And it was used by early bishops and people to talk about the character of Jesus that throughout history, it has survived. Regardless of what the new NIV says, um, and, and even then, a lot of translations still keep it in. So anyway, I want to do that. So who wants to go first? We'll see how close each of you got. Okay, here we go. Check. Can I? Check. All right, come on up. Oh, do you know how to work this? Maybe. Okay, tell them what your side said. I've got, when I'm embarrassed, my face turns red and my palms sweat. Okay, all right. This side had, when I'm nervous, I get sweaty feet nervous. <laughs> Nailed it. 
All right. Do you want to know what each side had? They both had the same thing. And generally, the idea came through. On this side, my feet sweat. On this side, my palms sweat. In reality, my armpits were sweating. Oh, you heard it in Paris. Oh, so you translated it back. Well done. Ah, I love it. So just a little illustration of how oral tradition gets translated and brought forward, okay? And, and so now, we've all been embarrassed, okay? I remember in middle school, one time, I was in PE, out on the blacktop, shooting some hoops, went up to take my shot, and this guy came up behind me, pantsed me. And you know how, like, there's nothing worse than getting pantsed except getting pantsed with, like, your arms up so your shirt is high? Anyone else ever been pantsed? At least a third of the room has been pantsed. This is not a good American tradition, okay? But, but I, I'll tell you, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything worse than getting pantsed, you know, like that feeling of being naked and exposed in public in front of everyone. And I mean, it's, it's the ultimate. And I'll tell you though, for me, because you know, I, I'm always like trying to think one step ahead of the bully, you know, like, so I'll tell you, I went up for my shot, I got pantsed, but I also knew that I wore boxers. And really, what's the difference between PE shorts and boxers? <laughs> Not a whole lot. So I just, Stayed with my pants around my ankles, took my shot, and then just walked off the court. <laughs> you can't let them see you sweat. But I think we've all been embarrassed. We've said things we wished we could take back or did things that we regret, right? Um, you've ever been called out for something that you did or publicly humiliated? I mean, my daughter Allie just the other day called me in tears because in making a left turn, this woman honked at her ruthlessly. Okay? Are you, wait, are you mortified now? There's my illustration. Okay. I mean, just last month, we're in this room right here sitting at tables for a minister's meeting, and all these front chairs had been removed, the back ones had been left. And uh, Basil, you know, just being so careless, sits right in my seat where I had been sitting. And I didn't mind, you know, take whatever seat you want, Basil. But uh, my coffee was in front of him. And so I, it was in one of these little tiny cups, you know. And so I just uh, re I leaned over to him and I said, hey, is that my coffee? You know, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's not mine. So I reach over to grab my coffee. And as I pull it back, I like bump him. And you know how these cups are, okay? <laughs> I spill it on his jacket, okay? And I had been planning to, because Sam was up here talking at the time, and there's all these pastors in the room. I had been planning to slip in, grab my coffee from the table, and then just sit right where Chris is, you know, on the back, on, on this row, and just slip right back down. But now I've got my coffee, so I can listen to Sam, you know? And, um, but spilling on Basil makes 
like him, like jump up to like go wipe off. And I, apparently he wasn't so worried about his jacket as it was on his iPad. And so, <laughs> so he jumps up. And so me trying to just be like, you know, I got quick reflexes, man. I'm telling you, like, I, I just kind of like slide out of the way, you know, so that like he can jump up and do it. But Sam is still talking, you know? And so I'm trying to just be super low key and super chill. And so even though I had cat-like reflexes and slid out of the way, I just was still going to go ahead and sit right back down where I was. And I went and sat down and sat down and I had slid over to the aisle. <laughs> and so as if me spilling on Basil wasn't enough, coffee in hand. And you know, like, like when you, if anyone's ever pulled the chair out on someone, like you don't notice until it's too late. Yeah. Like you're thinking, there's a chair, there's a chair, there's a chair. And at the point you realize there's no chair, you can't just squat. You're like, it's too late. It's way too late, you know? And so then I went a tumbling down along with my coffee. Now Basil and me both got coffee all over us. And that was the point where Sam just gave up and was like, what's going on back there? So, but, but when we talk about shame, okay, when we talk about shame, it's more than just being embarrassed. Because I honestly don't get embarrassed easy. You know, like that whole thing about the spilling the coffee, I laughed, we laughed, we made a joke about it, didn't bother me. You know, getting pants, I just walk off, you know. Um, Lisa's been reading these uh, Brene Brown books, you know, and she says, you know, Brene Brown says, if you don't experience shame, then you're a sociopath, you know. So she's like, just to, so we're clear, you know. <laughs> and, and so when we talk about shame, you know, the reality is we're talking about something much deeper than just embarrassment, you know. And shame is rarely something that, that doesn't happen in the context of community. Like, if I miss the chair and sit on the ground and I'm in the room by myself, there's really not a shame embarrassment factor in that at all. I mean, if I get pantsed in the bathroom by myself before getting in the shower, that's just called getting in the shower. You know, like, that's not embarrassing. That's not, you know, and the idea that this shame comes from the context of community is really an important part of this. So this story that we're going to read from Not the Bible is uh, from John chapter 1, or John chapter 8, verse 1. We'll start here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, so imagine a scenario like this. Jesus is up here speaking. I know in this illustration I'm Jesus, so it's hard to, like, picture, but just, you know, if you could take that extra leap. You know, so, like, he's up here teaching, and there's a crowd of people there. And as he was speaking, like, in the middle of it, you know, like, in the middle of it, they bring this woman in, and the teachers of the religious law of the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. So in the middle of the sermon, all of a sudden, someone gets drug in from outside. It's like, this woman was caught in adultery. Now, I don't know how you imagine this story, but I just could imagine if this were in a, you know, a Hollywood film, or especially if it was the HBO version, what kind of dress would this woman be in? What would her apparel be like? My guess is, if you're caught in the act of adultery in the act like in the actual act 
that pretty much means you're naked, right? Like, I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you, if you think about it, that's where she's caught, okay? And she gets drug up, and I don't know if she gets a chance to grab like a, a blanket or like half throw on something, you know? But she is in some state of undress when she gets drugged into, wait, where was he again? The temple. Imagine that. Caught in the act of adultery and in the act get drugged in front of the church during the sermon. Okay? So that's the context of this. And so when we think about shame, I mean, the expression getting caught with your pants down is there for a reason. <laughs> because that is embarrassing and shameful and hard and difficult. And this woman gets caught in that act. And she gets brought in before Jesus' teaching in the temple. And if you think about this idea of, and, and sorry if this is embarrassing for some of you, but this idea of nakedness, exposure, nakedness. Like, I don't know if Eve has an armadillo in this. I'll tell you, I, would, I plan to put one of these, like, you know, paintings of the Adam and Eve. This was like the least risque, okay? So if you're embarrassed a little bit, I was kind of going for that. But um, if you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, the story of Genesis, like the, the account of God creating humans, Adam, Eve, the man, the woman, it says that they walked with God in the cool of the day. It says also in Genesis 2 that they were naked and that they were unashamed. Naked and unashamed. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be naked in front of all of you guys. I mean, that, that's listed as like one of people's top fears, you know, is public speaking and then also public speaking naked. I don't know why you would ever do that, but like that fear is like embedded in the hearts of, of humans, you know? And to think about being naked in front of God, but completely unashamed. I remember like when my kids were little. I remember when I was a little kid. I'd run around naked all the time. I didn't care. In front of my parents, my family, I'd run around naked. I'd get naked in the grocery store. Like it didn't matter, you know? <laughs> like there's something about kids that have like no shame about their nakedness. And in that setting, Adam and Eve were completely unashamed with their nakedness. But do you know where that changes? It changes when they sin. It begins in the act of sin that all of the sudden, and this is how the story goes, by the way, that they sin, and then God calls out to them, and you know what they do? They hide. They hide. And I think that is very much a part of our human nature, to hide our nakedness before God. Like, they hid their nakedness, their exposure, their humiliation from everyone after they sinned. And I think the important thing to note in the story of Genesis, as well as in this story that we're looking at in John, is that the most damaging thing about shame, the most damaging thing about shame, is that it breaks our connection with God. Like it makes us, literally in the story of Adam and Eve, want to hide from God. 
And when you think about your own sin, your own shame, your own nakedness before God, there's something about that that makes us want to hide, to be far away. And that is really the most damaging thing about shame, is that it breaks our connection with God. It keeps us from a connection with God. We don't want to sin and then stand before God. We don't want to sin and then come before the community of believers. We don't want that. And so as the story continues, they bring this woman before Jesus in some state of undress and caught in the act of adultery. And they say that, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And this was really a setup for Jesus that they wanted to trap him because, you know, if if he says, yeah, stone her, you know, then he becomes not who Jesus is. If, on the other hand, he says, well, then don't stone her, well, then he gets accused of violating the, the law of Moses, and they could actually execute him for that. They, you know, and this, that's why some people think this passage might have come later, because it was like in the times where the Pharisees are trying to trap him and get ready for what would ultimately happen, which was he would be crucified. But I think in the, in this, the context of our stories, There really is a sense of public shame when it comes to before other people, like the social structures and context that we've had. You know, that's why it's a a lot of times hard for people to be involved with churches when they feel like everyone's judging them. I mean, I don't know about you, I felt that. Has anyone else felt that? Where in the context of a church, just me and Jared, um, just in the context of a church that you feel like it's hard to be there because the other people will judge them. But I think what's even more important than that is right here, what, what they say. They, they say the law of Moses says to stone her. And when we look at the law, like, like the written law, you know, whether it be the Ten Commandments, whether it be the rules that we've created as a social society, whether it be the rules that we create in a church context, you know, what's acceptable and what's not, and what's okay and what isn't, you know, like there are these rules, but I think what really matters at the end of the day is what do you say, Jesus? And I think that's the question that we're all asking is, God, what do you say to me about this sin, about this shame, about this thing that I feel? And so uh, the, the passage continues. They were trying to trap him to say something they could use against him. But Jesus stopped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, at this point, being that this is one of those accounts that has a lot of mystique around it, this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus is recorded as writing anything. I mean, think about it. When did Jesus ever write anything? This is the only time that Jesus ever writes something, okay? And as he writes in the dust with his finger, we don't know what he's writing. So, I mean, it could have been he's writing his to-do list for the day, recipes maybe, the great Gatsby. I mean, we don't, we don't know. There's, you know. It could be really anything that he's writing. But uh, many people believe that he was writing down the sins of those who were present. And I think that's, um, it, like, the theory of that is because right now they're demanding of him And it says, so he kept demanding, and he stood up again, and this is what he said. All right, like, 
wait, what do you mean, all right? <laughs> like, should we stone her or not? He's like, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Okay? And this is, you know, so Jesus, where he gets to basically create the structure in which everyone, like, is in a lose-lose situation. And that's why people think he was writing down the sins of those who are around them in the dust, because he's sitting there, he's writing in the dust, and then, he, and then they're like, wait, well, come on, what are you doing? You know, like, and, you know, I think it's funny if you think about how these things go down. Like in the story, they're like, he's up there preaching, you know? And they drag in this woman half-dressed. She got caught in adultery. Now, I think another thing that's important to, to like note in this story, like in the words of the great Rob Bass, it takes two to make a things go right. It takes two to make it out of sight. Where's the dude? Like, you don't commit adultery by yourself. <laughs> like, this woman wasn't committing adultery alone, okay? And she got caught in the very act of adultery. It means there was a guy somewhere. He's not here. She's brought in and being caught in the act of adultery. She's brought in before Jesus, and they drag her up to the front, and they say, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? And in the middle of his sermon, this happens. And so he's like, and just like starts writing in the sand. Like, you know, like not just ignore. And then finally, when they demand for him, he says, okay, all right. But he who is without sin has never sinned. Throw the first stone. And then he stoops back down and starts writing again. Okay. And I do think it's interesting to, to think about this. If, in fact, he was writing down the sins of those present, like, even then, he's writing down their sins in the dust. And to think about the nature of who Jesus is, that he's writing these things down so that they can be blown away, even for those who are the accusers. And so he, he writes, begins to write down in the sand, and, and I think Sam Keaton on this in week one this section in 1 John, totally different book, by the way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, that idea that he who has never sinned, let him throw the first stone. I think when we look at the shame in our lives, we feel so bound by the shame and guilt of that sin, and we feel like everyone is getting ready to throw a stone at us. But when we read this section of Scripture, we realize that being without sin, there is none of us. And in reality, the only person present in that woman's life who could have thrown a stone was Jesus. He was the only one there who was actually sinless. And it says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, and I don't know why it was the oldest. Some people think it's because they had more sins to the youngest. And it says, only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. And when Jesus says, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone, some people think, you know, was he talking about all sins collectively? Or was he keying on specifically the act of adultery? Was he keying in on specifically adultery? Or another thought is like, 
was he specifically talking about this woman? Like, was there something going on with this woman where she had been sleeping with people? Maybe these guys themselves who were brought in. And like guys do, they bring in this woman like it's her fault. She's been committing adultery. We caught her. With who? And so when all of this happens, the men begin to slip away from the oldest all the way to the youngest until there's no one left at all. And then it says Jesus stood up and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And all of the accusers had gone away. All the accusers were gone. But there was still one left. And I think at the end of the day, there's still one left for us too. I can get up here and, and not accuse you. We can be the most loving and accepting church there is. But when people walk through this door, when you walk through this door today, there's still one left. There's still a holy God who you stand before naked and bare with all your sins exposed. And you say, God, but what about you? What do you say? You are the one left. You are the one who can accuse me. You are the one who is actually sinless. You can grab that stone. You can throw that first stone. She says, no, Lord, no one else is here. And so Jesus responds, well, then neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to share with you a story. And I'm going to read it. The story is of a little girl named Cindy. She was exa exactly middle in a family of five. Two older brothers and two younger sisters. When she was nine years old, her dad died. She learned later that it was drug-related. She and her siblings were separated and shipped off to live with various relatives. She ended up with an aunt and uncle along with her two little sisters. Sadly, she was molested and physically abused. She ended up as a teenage runaway living with her best friend, who was also a drug addict, shooting up heroin between her toes. Not long after her 18th birthday, she met an older guy at a party and started dating. A few months later, he moved away, and she ended up pregnant. She considered an abortion, but could not bring herself to do it. But she was also ashamed to bring a bastard child into the world. Before the baby was born, she married a man who turned out to be an alcoholic and an abuser. By the time she was 20, she was divorced and a single mom, living in a small apartment with her teenage sisters, sharing a room so that her son could have his own room. Not long after that, she ran into the baby's father, a real Hells Angel type biker who rode a Harley and was also a cocaine addict. But they were young and in love, and they had a son to raise, so they got married. He went through N.A. and got off drugs while she got her A.A. at the local community college. He worked as a mechanic and she did bookkeeping while putting herself through college. They bought a small house in a not-so-great part of town, but it was close to the state college and it was away from the bad influences. He sold his Harley to afford a used car so she could take their son to daycare before going to work. 
She slowly moved from bookkeeping to accounting and eventually got her master's degree. He got a better job at a dealership that provided benefits and they started talking about having more kids. But just as the hard years were turning into happy years, things took another turn. Her baby had grown to a boy and that boy had joined a gang. Detentions turned into suspensions and he started using hard drugs himself. Soon he was kicked out of high school and then out of continuation school free to spend his days dealing drugs and his nights partying and sleeping around. But this is when Jesus enters the story. Cindy had never been an overly religious person herself. Not that she didn't believe in God, but she had never seen him very active in her life. But she prayed. She prayed to the God that, somewhere, that was somewhere out there that she'd always believed in but never seen completely present and asked this one prayer. Please, God, not for me, but for him. Please save my son. And something miraculous happened. He did. That 15-year-old high school dropout, bastard son, gave his life to Christ. And not only did he get saved in every sense of the word, but radically. The old life was over, and a new life filled with purpose and meaning began. He went back to high school and started college, got married, and seemed to have been spared from the hard life that she had faced. And she thanked God. And maybe out of penance or a bit of obligation, she started going to church herself. Not like every week or anything, but way more than before. Several years later, I will never forget the day she called me on a Sunday morning. And she said, something happened at church today. And I said, what happened, Mom? She said, Doug said something today. Doug's our pastor. Not Pastor Doug, just always Doug. Doug said something today. I realized something that I had never realized before, that God could forgive me. She said, I know that he saved you, and I'm forever grateful for that. But I guess I never realized that he could actually save me, too. At the end of the service, I cried, and when he asked if we wanted to accept forgiveness, I raised my hand. See, that day, the words of Jesus rang out in her life, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. The reality is that you can believe in God, and you can even see the miraculous work of God in the lives of others, and yet still be living under the grip of shame in your own life. I said it earlier, and I'm going to say it again. The most damaging thing about shame is it breaks our connection with God. And I wonder what would happen if instead of living in the grip of shame, if we allowed ourselves to have the forgiveness of God wash over us. See, like Adam and Eve, when we sin, our inclination is to hide from God. Our inclination is to hide our nakedness, our exposure. Our natural reaction is try to cover our sin with fig leaves and avoid at all cost people looking at us. But what would happen if we bore our nakedness and exposed our shame to a Savior who would rather give up his life than allow us to be outside communion and relationship with him? And what if instead of being a people 
who pick up stones at the failures of others. We knelt down and wrote our own sin in the sand, allowing God to forever erase the shame that would have us so tightly bound. I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about the worst sin you have ever committed. Whether it was a one-time incident or a reoccurring theme, I want you to focus on the shame that you feel and how that has kept you from experiencing the fullness of what God would have for your life. I want you to close your eyes and just symbolically, I want you to write that sin in the sand. Write out every detail. The ugly, the horrific, the shameful, detestable things. Just write them out in the sand. And now I want you to scoop that sin into your hand. And, and even though everything in you wants to keep it trapped in your fist, buried in that secret place in your heart, I'm going to ask you to raise your arms and to open your hand and to give that thing to God. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to scoop that up and to hand it to God because this is the thing in your life you don't ever want God to have. This is the thing in your life you don't want God to know about. This is the thing in your life you wish that no one ever knew, especially God. But as you lift your hand and you open your palm, I just want you to whisper this prayer. God, forgive me. save me. That's what Hosanna means. God, save us. And with your hand up and your palm open, I want you to hear the words of Jesus echoed through the good father as he says to you, I do not condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And now, whether you put your arm down or you still have it up, I'm going to ask you to put it up again if you did this. And I'm going to do something that we don't normally do, but with your hand still raised in this uh, triumphant release, I just want you to look around the room. And I want, to see, I want you to see a room full of people that have also been in a cloud of shame to know that you're not alone in your shame and that among us, we will not, we will not cast that first stone. I'm asked the worship team to come and you can put your arms down. Sorry if it's tired.